Tell me of Yorkshire, Jack. <laughs> Tell me of the Knoll. Tell me all about Yorkshire. Uh, to answer your question, and now I just feel like a fucking robot. <laughs> uh, really nice. The Yorkshire Dales remain really nice. My okay. first time going there this past weekend. And beautiful. We did one of the three peaks. Uh, what was it? It was the one with the funny name. Uh, Pen Penny... Fuck, it's like Penny in something or Penny E. God damn it. I'm just going to have to look it up. Hang on. Three Peaks, Yorkshire. Sounds Penny, Welsh. Penny Ghent. Penny Ghent. Penny Ghent. Yeah, sounds we very Welsh. <laughs> yeah. Very cool, though, I will say. And it was awesome taking the train up there through the Dales and seeing, like, once you get past Leeds, all of those little villages, it's just, you know, smokestack after smokestack. Like, obviously not in use anymore, but like old manufacturing things. And like, mm-hmm. I don't know, that was cool. I was just like, I got the train and I was talking to my partner and I was like, this is just like that book I read a while ago, Fossil Capital. And she was just like, oh, yeah, great. Oh, great. Uh, she's like, this is where I'm from. This is normal. <laughs> but yeah, yes. very cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yorkshire Dales gets Take a Take me to your finest watermill. Yeah. <laughs> that was my, my first impression going to Manchester too. It was kind of like that as well. Like, cause like so much of it is still just like the old brick from back then, you yeah. know, of like manufacturing stuff. I was like, this is cool, man. This is really cool. Yeah. That's what I grew up around all of these old mills. And mm. there are, there are, I, don't, I mean, um, there were still a few chimneys to be demolished at that point, but I think they're mostly gone now, but the mills still exist used as factories or accommodation or whatever. Um, yeah, I do miss that. Mm, so I've, nice. I sort of took that as the normal development for a town. So I sort of thought all towns were like that. And then, yeah. Um, yeah. I've subsequently realized it's not like that everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Like me, a nice red brick mill. And they look good. They're mm, like, they're like. They do. Yeah. They're, they're able to be converted well. Yes. Fine architecture. I love it too in places like Manchester or Leeds where you have like clusters of those old brick buildings and then you just have like a horrible fucking new build right next to it. And it's just like, it's just so like startling to see. It's just like, oh God. I, th- I mean, I think I always found Manchester to be quite nice in the sense that I feel like it missed out on a certain like 70s series of brutalist development. <laughs> if you go to Birmingham, it's just awful. Uh, but I saw so, my, my uh, sort of like, abiding image of manchester is all of these red brick buildings and then all of the sort of like glass 21st century stuff which i can mm. accept as well and other than the arndale center there isn't really any like horrible concrete um yeah. monstrosities so. yeah. yeah manchester not as despoiled by the 70s as uh, as other towns in the uk in the uk um is it true somebody told me when i was up there they were like the dales the dales they're like used to be covered as far as you can see in thick forest is that true it seems like mm. the dales just seem like a very naturally bleak place to me like i wouldn't put mm. it past the like crown <laughs> to have just gone in as they did with other places in the british isles and just level the forests but you know, well, I know. well i i'm gonna have to tell you because a proud lancastrian i have oh, no idea oh that's right anything. i forgot who i was speaking to <laughs> There's so Don't know much anything about Yorkshire. It was like kind of a touristy kind of like town, one of the places we stopped in. And it was like everything. It was like you can buy a like shot glass with a white rose on it, or you can buy a like cross <laughs> with a white rose on it. It's very funny. The white rose, I hate to say it, I will be decapitated if my partner hears me say this, but like it looks a bit fashionist. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't like it. I hate to say it. It's like something you'd see. I don't know. It's no good. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah white and red there's a, there's a yeah. more the contemporary seem- political history that we're <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> more sensitive to i suppose 
Yeah, I don't know. Such is life. Anyway, mm-hmm. we're, we're here. To, we're here to talk uh, communism, Dan. Enough of this. Mm-hmm. Enough of this. Not the wars of the roses. Nonsense. Not the wars of the roses. Who, who who won the wars of the roses? Was it the Lancastrians or did they yeah, merge? Yeah. That was the oh, Tudors, wasn't it? Tudors. It was the Tudors. Um, Henry the Seventh, what defeated Richard the mm. Third, and whatever battle, and uh, mm. you know, there you go. See, I know the about Plantagenets this. Plantagenets were slain, and the I don't know. <laughs> you know the Tudors and shit. Wait, so Lancaster, so the Lancastrians won. York, yeah. the York, Yorkshire people lost. Oh my god, that explains. This is my understanding did. of the history, anyway. <laughs> okay. Don't get your medieval history from us. Okay, but. okay. That's why the Tudor, I think the Tudor rose is like a red rose with like a smaller white rose oh, inside yeah. of it. You're right. That might yeah. be true. Yeah. Yeah, because down here on the cathedral gate, there's like a, it's like a red dog with dragon wings on the crest and also like a white dog. And it's just well, like, I can't explain that at all. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh-huh. anyway, um, Hey, you doing, Dan? Ready to talk? Ready to talk some politics? This is the point. If we were like a monetized podcast, this is the point where we did announce that the sponsor is that stupid like lineage thing where you get to have a crest made up and And manscaped. (laughs) There are so many. So, like, mainly, I listen to some like left wing podcasts, but mainly the podcasts I listen to are like baseball or just like sports in general. And there are several baseball podcast specifically that i just had to stop listening to because like every ad was just the most like like in your face manscaped ad that was just like oh i don't want to come on or like gambling it's just like oh stop i don't want to hear about this (laughs) yeah Yeah. anyway you won't hear about any any um male grooming products on this show (laughs) until we get an offer until we get an offer from yeah whatever that horrible uh, anyway (laughs) (sighs) yeah Uh anyways all right um should we get into it i don't know should we just get into it this one's gonna be a bit more of a ramble yeah i think (laughs) so i've been trying to figure out if we should like for the last episode okay so when we were trying to figure out what we wanted to read for this episode i came across uh the most recent monthly review which was all about degrowth and I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. We've like engaged with a little bit of like JBF thought, as I'm going to call it now, John Bellamy Foster <laughs> thought <laughs> on the show before, mainly just to criticize, I hate to say, because mm. we did we did do an episode on Metabolic Rift and we did both really like it. Um, and we kind of went on and read, you know, some more and some book chin <laughs> and kind of, you know, maybe uh, moved away from it a bit. But monthly review, as far as I can tell, is like John Bellamy Foster's kind of thing. Like, I think he's on the main editorial board, if not the head honcho over there. Um, and so when I came across this, I was like, degrowth is something we've wanted to talk about before. We never got around to reading the Kohei Saito book all about degrowth that we were looking forward to for like a year. And then when it came out, we just couldn't be bothered with actually getting it for whatever reason. So I was like, this could be a good opportunity to talk about degrowth. Um, because I kind of have this idea in my head that it's just a completely false dichotomy. And I was like, this would be some good stuff to talk about for no other reason than to like criticize it and to figure out what is actually going on with like this seemingly false dichotomy between growth and degrowth. So having said all of that, for this week, we read like five essays from that, five, six, something like that, essays from that monthly review, the most recent monthly review um, for, I guess, August, it's either August or July of this year. So we read something from John Bellamy Foster, uh, Nicholas Graham, Jason Hickel, uh, Guni Ishkara and Oscar Narin and Ken Klitgard. 
Um, and they were all pretty good. But I don't know how much of like a coherent thread this is all going to have other than just a general discussion, I think. Yeah, I about degrowth. Yeah, I don't think I read these articles in the order in which they appear in monthly review. And so I wonder whether if I had read them in that order, whether a more coherent thread would have emerged. There were certainly some themes that were really interesting to sort of um, uh, visit and revisit. And this really did um, cohere with a lot of other stuff that we've read in the past. So I really did enjoy it. I would have liked, I think, if um, there'd been more evident debate between some of these articles, um, whether people would have been... I think one of them was like actually minded toward explaining the distinction between these two and sort of like explaining, maybe not agreeing that there is a valid dichotomy between the two. Because as you say, I, th- I think I also agree that like it's um, it's not a very useful dichotomy. And all of these articles are minded toward criticizing um, the more mainstream ideas of degrowth um, from a sort of radical socialist or communist or Marxist perspective. Um, so there's quite a lot of uh, consistency and agreement within these articles, um, but a lot of interesting things to pick out of it as well. I definitely I was pleased that we visited it because degrowth is something that you come up against quite a lot. I sort of people often bring up people who are not sort of nominally left wing who I encounter in my everyday life sort of have these ideas around degrowth, um, and I always want to have a kind of be able to engage in a kind of nuanced discussion. Um, I don't know whether that's, I'm now fully furnished with all the ammunition to have that discussion, but I, I feel better. But um, yeah, I'm looking forward to talking to you about it, Jack. Okay, <laughs> well, that's good. Yeah, I don't know. I'd always just assumed that like degrowth versus growth stuff just meant like, because it's, it's a debate that I've only really ever seen on Twitter. And then on like more like protest lines with like anarchisty types. Like I feel like this is kind of stuff that came up during Occupy, right? It's like people looking around and being like, well, wait a minute. Why why is everything the way that it is? Why do we need this continuing spiral of accumulation that's just ruining the planet? And now they they come out and basically just say in a statement where they're like, you know, in this, they're like, if you're a thinking person, you recognize that like, the climate crisis is linked directly to capitalism and that it isn't an anthropocentric thing, right? If you've thought about it for like five seconds, you can see that. Um, so I, I, the debate on Twitter seems to basically, it's it's kind of asinine. It basically just seems to be people that recognize that a lot of the cycles of accumulation stuff need to be stopped. And then people on the other side who seem to be arguing like people, the People's Republic of Walmart guy, and I'm probably going to be one of them. I'm probably going to be like misconstruing what they say but like a lot of, well, we want to give everybody on the planet the quality of life of a wealthy person, which is like absurd, <laughs> just like so dumb. But there's a there's a good debate in there somewhere and there's a kernel of truth about like, well, where are we going to be setting this quality of life standard? What can we do? Does it matter like what we think we want to do? Because in reality, where is the line that we're just going to have to follow at the end of the day? But in these essays, degrowth seems to be slightly more, I don't know, it's its basically just defined as, I think John Bellamy Foster calls it like a prosperous way down from current like exploitative extractivist class relations, right? Completely just ruining fully our ecology. 
And so from there, it's like, well, yeah, like anybody who calls himself a socialist should be able to call themselves like a degrowther. I think the issue then comes like, where do you draw that line in terms of like, what is the quality of life we're going to be giving everybody that is sustainable? You know, what can we give everybody? Um, and yeah, just general thinking along like, I don't know, along those lines. Some of this felt a little bit petty bourgeois, maybe not petty bourgeois, just like it, it felt like a little bit like it was being influenced by some bourgeois ideology along the lines of like what we need to like um, stop in terms of, you know, the things we need to grow versus the things that we need to cut back on. But um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was interesting nonetheless. And like I said, yeah, just to finish, like I do think that this really clarified what exactly is meant by degrowth, which is basically just to me, just like, yeah, producing utility producing use values you know what i mean yeah yeah yeah. and in this it almost seems to there seems to be a, a correlation between degrowth being a necessary facet or fact um uh feature i suppose of socialism and then transition to socialism so that's coming back to your thing about there being a false dichotomy between degrowth thinking and um socialist thinking like in the majority of these articles um, whether it's a positive or a negative thing, and in some ways it's it, it's approached in different ways, the activity of degrowth also seems to be a positive feature of um, uh, a transition to socialism. I think coming back to your sort of understanding of what the t- Twitter debate around these things is, I definitely think the, there is a very vocal, I've come across it, very vocal um, stance, which is anti a degrowth narrative, which I think sort of takes like a, a somewhat identitarian approach to the working class and says well um degrowth nation naturally implies a sort of like austerity minded response to environmentalism and therefore and, and the, the ecological crisis and therefore it's degrowth is also inherently like anti-working class is about impoverishing people's standards of living um so many of these articles are about challenging what uh, what are the correct aspirations for human beings and um, the way they are alienated by capitalism and what socialism would mean for their sort of like as a as a as a mode of production kind of thing and how in ways in which they would liberate the working class in a way that that sort of and what i've just described as an identitarian approach maybe doesn't always put front and center yeah i've, I've seen it described as like should under socialism, should everybody have a private jet or should nobody have a private jet? And it's like, okay, if you have one brain cell, you'll be able to come up with the answer to that one. But it's funny because I think what you're saying, it's like, is is, is this thinking around an anti-degrowth uh, politics and economics? To me, I go back and forth on thinking it's whether it's just pure bourgeois ideology, right? The things that the petty bourgeoisie or the bourgeoisie aspire to and thus that they make as the ruling ideology of the time you know nice car big suburban house you know all of these wasteful things private jet if you pull yourself up by your bootstraps like is it that is it just bourgeois capitalist ideology or is it like a kind of like a weird hangover from 20th century socialism and i think like what i mean by that is that back then the promise was you can have it all baby if you go to socialism you can have it all and that same you know whether or not that was like a valid way of propagandizing back then i think depends on the time and the place 
But I think that like using that now is incredibly destructive and just like a lie, like because the circumstances are completely different. It's like, whoa, we don't want everybody to have everything because they can't. It's like, of course, not everybody like not everybody should have a fucking car. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like we can't be promising everybody has the life of their boss because that other than being morally reprehensible to me, I think it's also just like it's ecologically would just ruin the planet. So it's not even a question. It's like, why is this a question? Why why is this a debate even worth having? And so I think that's why I appreciated these because they just say, that's absurd. Let's get down to the brass tacks of like, how can we actually sustainably degrow the economy? And the cover of this monthly review was like a reverse spiral going into a circle, if you can kind of picture that, like into a steady state. So that's kind of like a metaphor for what they're describing. Get rid of all of the fat, give everybody a good quality of life, focus on replacement investment and utility. And that's that. It's like, well, yeah, I've said like that, that's socialism. There's a really, maybe it's in the Foster piece or one of the other ones. Um, they make a really interesting point by quoting Engels and suggesting that like the transition to socialism will be this transition into huge material abundance and like a liberation of the productive forces that will like, um, create so much more uh, tangible material benefit to the working class than existed for the working class under capitalism. But then the author of that piece makes the point that, well, that was Engels speaking in the 19th century and the degree of growth that's happened, what the, the kind of like material increase in the sort of productivity of the system that Engels was envisaging as a feature of socialism, well, that's happened, but under capitalism kind of thing like from that standpoint it makes sense why marx and engels would have declared a transition from capitalism to socialism in their own era to be one which would be productively liberating but um the productive forces have moved on history has moved on we have to take like a materialist approach and look at the world in which we exist in now where are we at um what is the current nature of the sort of like the rift in the metabolism between human beings and the rest of the sort of ecosystem um, and say, no, we exist in a different historical uh, material era that has different constraints upon it. Yeah, qualitatively and quantitatively, right? Because one of the big questions when you're trying to tackle this stuff about how we can degrow an economy and create socialism, I guess, is getting to terms with the divide between the first and third worlds, right? Between what they call here, the global North and the global South, like the amount of people, Mike Davis talks a lot about like the growing number of like lumpen. Um, and you know, whatever you make of the term lumpen, just like maybe just like generally unemployed or like the growing to be a bit more Marxist, like growing reserve army of labor in the global South. Um, how are you going to give these people a good quality of life? Presumably what they put forward here is that degrowth is going to be a massive growth in the quality of life for the global south and like a pretty substantial shrinking in terms of the quality of life for the global north. I think we can get into, I think, some of the more philosophical implications of that because I don't really agree that, I don't know, I'm one of these people that just like, I think if we were to institute socialism, every single person on the planet, the Jeff Bezoses and the Elon Musks of the world included, everybody would have a better quality of life full stop just maybe that's a philosophical thing. Maybe that's just because producing for use is like better for everybody and, you know, community and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But basically, yeah, it's, it's quite a bit different now than in the 20th century where you have like, I don't know, 
say Bangladesh and Indonesia versus like Stockholm and London, like how are, and then like the inter first world quote unquote, like divides between in those cities and in those countries, like, where is it that you draw the line? How can you convince people that you will have a better quality of life under socialism, but you're going to need to get rid of your like five TVs and two cars. And you're going to have to actually like maybe live in an apartment complex. Whoa. Like you can't have your suburban fucking castle, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of that comes down to um, one of these pieces sort of like lays out what a trend, a sort of um, a degrowth slash green transition into eco-socialism would look like. Um, and it focuses a huge amount on um, the nature of the division of labor. And the nature of the division of labor under capitalism is um, the division between um, different uh firms different corporations that kind of thing like different companies there is no overlap between there's no collaboration between laborers between different companies they're sort of like um set against one another and because of the sort of like nature of market competition but also there's the there's the division of labor that's created across borders there's the naturally extractive nature of uh contemporary capitalism and I don't know what you might call like neo-imperialism or whatever. Um, And I feel like a a partial answer to that question of how would you reconcile that sort of divide between the contemporary most developed parts of the world and those still developing ones is to say, well, under socialism, we would break down some of those barriers and would allow for uh, a much more cooperative um, development of uh, to the productive cap- capacity, which might not be representative of growth, it might be a development of degrowth, but an evening out of that um, divide might be an expectation of what a socialist mode of production might um, have as a core feature, I guess. Yeah, and they the solution that they basically come to is that everything needs to be planned, right? Which, yeah, I mean, if you're a socialist, you agree with that. The question then kind of comes, well, what does that mean? John Bellamy Foster in here gives a really good like whistle stop tour of the Soviet Union's experience with planning, as well as a slightly shorter one about China's experience with planning. It gives you a rundown about like, you know, why it didn't work. But here were some good things about it. It kind of does some Soviet defensism stuff, um, which we can get into. But you do see some ideology like popping through in terms of their specific brand of socialism, because basically every single person in this, I also find it very funny that pretty much everybody in this was like, had John Bellamy Foster in their citations. It's like, okay, yeah, there you go. Um, Basically they're all calling for democratic central planning, right? Which is, seems to be, okay, we're going to do what the Soviet Union did, but it's going to be good. Trust me, it's going to be good. They're not actually calling for Goss plan. They're not actually calling for like a command economy as they call it here. Um, But at the end of the day, they are basically calling for a type of central planning that it's democratic and what that actually means they never actually get into. I think the things that frustrated me the most about these essays was that it felt like most of what they said about defending planning and explaining why you need to do degrowth could have been summed up in one essay. And then I feel like a really good use of everyone's time would have been actual concrete proposals for how these things are going to work. But I guess this is an academic journal. So what do you expect from that? You're not actually going to get those. Um, But 
I guess to get into a little bit about the planning stuff, um, they make the point that capitalism is never going to allow for the kind of planning that we need to get out of the climate crisis, right? It's just never going to happen. And they point to this interesting kind of uh, dichotomy in capitalist functioning, which is that, and Marx points this out, that bourgeois ideology really celebrates planning as it happens in the firm and really celebrates like um, the division of labor as it exists in the individual firm and about getting everybody to do their own little thing on the Taylor's assembly line. Everybody really likes that but completely denounces it when it comes to emergent planning of a society, right? Like everything needs to be in competition with like a little bit of help from the state. Uh, but if you actually try and force capitalists into one specific thing, according to a social plan, uh, unless you're in times of crisis and war, as we've seen World War II in America and different times like this, um, it's not going to happen. And so they basically say that that ideology pops up, obviously, because of the material realities of capitalism, and that we're only going to get what is necessary to overcome the climate crisis, which is coherent planning, social planning, which is true in socialism, which again, I also agree with. It just, I guess, comes down to like the specific brand that they are, are thinking about. I mean, you're right that there isn't a, a very concrete proposal for what socialism would look like in this in this uh, vision, I suppose. I, I, I feel like I didn't read into this. Maybe it was a, sort of a naivety on my part. I didn't really read into this the same kind of political leanings uh, into these authors as you just described. Or rather, maybe I read it very charitably and every time I just sort of like, they talked about democratic or decentralized planning or they made reference to Soviets or councils or something. I just sort of, in my head, turned it into council communism or um, sort of labor time planning or that kind of thing. I sort of just like extrapolated it to mean whatever form of planning I wanted it to to imagine it as. Um, and I think under that reading, it was particularly, I think it's called Nicholas Graham, that, that one piece that was, um, I forget what it was called, uh, yeah, planning and the eco-socialist mode of production, uh, mode of cooperation. Um, because, because the experience that I was having was all of these articles sort of promised democratic planning as being the solution in some way or other. And I always, the experience I was having in my head was maybe it's a devil's advocate one, or maybe it's just a general skepticism one, or maybe it's the, the, the voice in my head that says, well, how do I discuss these ideas with somebody who's not already indoctrinated with these ideas? That voice was saying, how do you guarantee, how do you make a positive proposal for this form of um, democratic socialist planning automatically leading to more ecological outcomes or um, more efficient outcomes or whatever. Um, and I, I quite enjoyed sort of Graham's outlining of this because it was so much more my, it sort of, it began with uh, Marx's analysis of uh, what the advent of capitalism has done for the sort of like, collaborative cooperative nature of how working class people work together and then proposes what would happen if we removed all the fetters all the ones that i was just talking about i.e sort of like the division of labor that's that exists because of the um competition between firms or the 
antagonistic relationship between different nations or different groups um and allowed rather for the sort of like full flourishing of the capacities of the working class um maybe you describe it as like a the sort of the variety locked into the working class being fully expressed um as being the sort of like positive result of a transition to socialism which would make um a more ecological form of economic uh, model economic planning a, a a likely outcome i suppose yeah yeah no i i think that's true and i i suppose i I think maybe I just have a general frustration every now and then with Marxists in general, like especially Marxist academics, because a lot of it seems to be leftover ideology of the 90s, where everybody still felt the need to, everybody abandoned the labor theory of value, and nobody was a Marxist anymore. And then suddenly, now everybody's a Marxist when you go onto a Marxist, when you go onto mm-hmm. a college campus, right? And so there are still some people who I think there's like a current of thought that is still a need to defend socialism and give an outline of why the Soviet Union actually had some good things and why it failed and why it didn't work in every single fucking essay that we read. Um, Mm -hmm. And I understand why that's necessary. But at the end of the day, I do, I'll admit, I do have a frustration with a lot of Marxists where it's like, okay, great. Maybe it's just because I've gone over the hump and I buy into labor theory value and Marxism in general. But like, I, I just feel like there needs to be more actual concrete proposals at this point. It's like, nobody's picking up the monthly review because they're like, you know, a like right-leaning reactionary liberal. And they're like, let's just see what they have to say. You know, it's like, it's going to be Marxist reading this. So like, it would be cool to have more concrete proposals in anything and fucking Jacobin, you know what I mean? And Jack, I mean, maybe not Jacobin, but like, I don't know. I just, I do think that there's a bit of poverty on that front because it's like, it can be a little bit too abstract sometimes. And I think that generally just saying we're going to get to this point of democratically controlled economy through nationalization and some things, it's like, well, okay. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. But to be fair, I will say what this stuff is excellent at. And I think I'm really, why I'm really glad we read it is like, if you were to send any one of these essays to like your liberal friend, they'll be able to just go, Oh, Okay. And, and I think that it is actually all of these are really excellent introductions to the topic of why things need to be planned, why we need to be producing for utility, explained in be- better than I could. <laughs> and and it hits on all the things like John Bellamy Foster's 30 page essay hits on pretty much every single um, uh, barrier that liberals would have to this stuff down to like a defense of China. You know what I mean? It's like it, it was really good in that sense, I'd say. Um, One of the things I'm wondering about is like, whether to outline because you in, in some ways when you're saying that like, that we're fighting there's a, a fighting of all debates going on here um i almost feel like to some extent like the degrowth fighting the degrowth debate in the context of the references made in this piece or whatever sort of feels like it might be treading old ground for these authors perhaps um but i'm sort of minded to wonder whether one of the things we should do is try and outline the difference between like the degrowth that they're criticizing versus the sense of degrowth that they're proposing in some respects because um they are i mean maybe it's not true to say these are old debates because these are still things that are banded around right so many prominent um ecological thinkers 
who write sort of pop ecology books or whatever um, talk about all these um, solutions to degrowth, but then never actually name the problem. They never like name capitalism. They never propose a change in the mode of production as being the necessary component of a process of degrowth kind of thing. Um, the the sort of like outline that's usually given in this piece is the the there's a series of like we're going to lower the length of the working day or we're going to introduce um a universal basic income uh sort of policy proposals like that which are sort of like i don't know whether doy ends is the right word but like pop they're like buzzwords in the sort of liberal left at the moment um and these pieces do do a really good job of criticizing that and then exposing the real, the very real and material constraints that there are on the forward development of um, sort of like business as usual economics, or even business as usual economics trend, um, uh, under conditions of some kind of like uh, Soviet the socialist economy rather than a capitalist one, right? Like there are very real limits to how much carbon we can put in the atmosphere. There are very real limits. This is the one that freaked me out a bit was like the very the limits to the natural resources that there are to even um invest in new supposedly green technologies, right? Because sometimes I always fall back on, well, why don't we just like cover the country in wind turbines and hey presto we've sorted it kind of thing but um what is the carbon footprint of those things and do we ha even have enough materials to do to do that kind of um uh technological development there were almost points in, when i was reading this where i sort of like ended up in a sort of like slightly malthusian haze where i was just like oh fuck like, maybe maybe these they just aren't the maybe these aren't the resources to achieve what we need to achieve um, when they start talking about four degrees, I was just like, and and what that would mean for sea level rise, I was just like, okay. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly. There is also the kind. I think you know, both both of us probably had that uh, re-encountered the slightly like doomer <laughs> approach to um, the environmental crisis that um, Jason W. Moore tried to dispel from us. But <laughs> he tried. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and then John Bellamy Foster pulls us back in. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> one th you're you're hitting on something that I really found enlightening here, and and I think one of my favorite essays, other than the John Bellamy Foster one, was the one by the two Turkish guys whose names I'll attempt to pronounce as Guni Ishkara and Ozgur Narin. I think that's how you say them. But they basically made the point that you're making, which is that you know, so-called like degrowth deniers or liberals or everybody who's not the smart enlightened people, right? Like they all refuse to see capitalism for what it is, which is a mode of production. There's just a complete inability to want to contend with capitalism as a way of socially organizing ourselves and at something that is completely historically contingent, right? Like all of this stuff about UBI and about like, you know, we, a lot of the anti-degrowth stuff, uh, it's just steeped in technological determinism. Like so mm. many liberals, if you talk to them about the climate crisis, they go, okay, yeah, it's bad, but carbon capture? <laughs> it's just like, I wish these people would just admit that it's not that they don't care because obviously they care. I'm not going to be like an asshole, but it's just like, they just don't want to contend with it. They just want to go on with their lives. 
part of me which is i could fucking do that because reading this stuff stresses me out immensely and like the stuff that we were just talking about i was like had to put it down and be like man we're getting four degrees of warming within my lifetime that's gonna be another catastrophe but you know again without contending with capitalism as a mode of production you're not going to get anywhere and they, those two authors make the point as well that there's also a reluctance to see planning in general as well as force and revolution as tools that we can use because everybody's so steeped in ideology and this is something that you hear anarchists talk about a lot about like the many possibilities that we have when it comes to our own action are mystified by capitalist ideology and it's totally true it's like People just think, oh, you can't do planning. That's been debunked. You can't plan things. It's like, fuck, like I was just hassling so-called democratically planned central planning. But like, damn, if we were to get that, like that might be the best that we're getting. You know what I mean? And that would be pretty good. So it's like, I don't know. It's so funny that it's like talking to liberals or anti-degrowth people. It's like, well, what about if we consciously made these decisions? And they just go, nope. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I don't think so. <laughs> Not possible. Well, yeah, I mean, this is the positive proposal of socialism, right? Is that we are able to collectively affect the world. Um, and that's that's the trajectory we could be placed on kind of thing. Um, yeah, one of the, one of the this was definitely in the John Bellamy Foster piece. Um, he took up a really, wait, well, he, he referenced very briefly a criticism of, this collection of degrowth policy proposals, I'm thinking of um, universal basic income in particular, but I think there's a more general point to be made where he's actually referencing, he, he quotes um, Paul Sweezy as sort of saying in the 60s when the idea of universal basic income comes about is that like, um, particularly under socialism, but in general, that might actually be a really bad thing for the working class, particularly under this idea that like, um, well, I suppose under socialism, every member of the working class will be in a position to have make a very important contribution to the organization of and the planning of the economy in a direction which is positive and meets people's needs and meets our environmental constraints. Um, and if we fall into this trap of saying that what we actually need to do is stop people from working. We need to sort of stop economic activity. Um, we need to pay people to stay home kind of thing. It's uh, not accepting that there is a, the possibility of collective planning that could happen. Um, and it's also not accepting the possibility that work could be incredibly liberating. It could be unalienating. It could be um, actually are uh, like prime engagement with the world and in some ways something which could even like reconnect us with nature and reconnect us with something that we've been incredibly alienated from through um, a process of engaging in labor which like a certain reading of marxism would say is a fundamental part of our nature as human beings kind of thing Um, and so part of the criticism of degrowth is that like um the degrowth argument is accepting all sorts of bourgeois assumptions one which says like work is laborious as something you do to just like uh gain um the material and things you need to reproduce yourself kind of thing but but it doesn't necessarily need to be read in that way i guess and um 
yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, UBI basically, what it's just, yeah, it is exactly what you're saying. It's a way of just accepting capitalists or capitalism's ills, right? As opposed to actually transcending them. And in a, in a sense, it's just forestalling revolution, right? And it's just making this mass reserve army of labor more of a threat, but also kind of doling it. Like he, he calls it, you know, like how religion was called the opiate of the masses. Mm-hmm. This would also be a similar opiate, right? And it's true. But I think that, you know, if you're trying to, if we're thinking politically about trying to sell that, where it's like, we're anti-UBI. I think as socialists, maybe we should be saying we're, Pro, we're anti-UBI, but we're pro like real UBI, like r- real things, like good housing, good food, food that isn't going to fucking kill you. I've been going nuts recently because it's like every time I just like am at work and I'm on my lunch break and I'm like, oh man, I, I just need like a snack. I need to go get something else. I need a bit more food. It's just fucking impossible to get anything that's like good for you, dude, for like cheap. It's just so impossible. Like, what about that? What about just giving people like good, healthy food, good housing, good transportation networks? Again, we're trying to transcend capitalism, not just like ameliorate it so you can just sit at home more and be more alienated, right? It's like, God, you think you're alienated now. Imagine if you didn't have to go to work, but it was still capitalism. Like that almost sounds more horrifying. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it is just a system of maintaining the class relationships that we have right now. Um, It allows the bourgeois class to continue the accumulation of capital that is there class role their class position um and the alternative to that is uh, an end to the accumulation of capital um and a full investment of all of those resources in um outcomes that meet useful ends for human beings um one of the things i was thinking about this is a very abstract thought and i'll see if i can explain it to you and then see if you have any thoughts but I was sort of thinking about all of the wealth that's been accumulated by all of these billionaires um, and whether all of the economic activity that's gone into doing that has sort of had it already... Because there's an extent to which you just say, well, we expropriate everything that the billionaires have and we repurpose it. Um, But at the same time, that wealth has already been accumulated through unecological means. Um, And I'd sort of was wondering whether this is me toying back and forth between whether there are the resources to achieve this outcome or whether we've somehow gone too far. And I, I, I sort of like Uh-oh. wander into my sort of Malthusian panic. <laughs> <Uh-oh>. and, <laughs> have we, we gone too to far? <laughs> uh, because obviously like the, the argument that's made in several of these pieces is that like, and it's, this is quite a reassuring one, right? The huge amount of, um, resource wastage like it goes in i mean you can identify very simple things right like all military investment you know like yeah (laughs) we just get rid of all of that for a start right that gives us a huge amount of like wiggle room to work with you know in terms of now how do we pursue these outcomes um but at the same time all of that carbon is already locked in i suppose all of that carbon that's in that aircraft carrier or that jet or whatever is like um so going forward there is a sort of there are there is economic wastage that can be repurposed kind of thing but um i don't know a lot of damage has already been done by capitalism i suppose oh yeah and this is what we read i think it was in fossil capital where he is talking about the like time delay between cutting emissions he was like if we cut all carbon emissions right now climate change is going to continue to be an issue for a long time you know just because there is a delay between 
putting CO2, methane, whatever into the atmosphere and, you know, ice caps melting, things like that, right? Or the jet stream getting all fucked up. Um, I suppose what I would say, though, is that, like, I think we've had the capacity to give everybody a good quality of life for a very long time. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's like, I, I, th- what I personally think about a lot is about what that quality of life would be, but I also don't really see that as, this is going to sound insane. I don't see that as much of like an issue materially because it's like, well, it's good. Whatever is going to happen is going to happen. You know what I mean? Like we can only produce so much. So that quality of life will be what it's going to be. You know what I mean? What I would say though, is like, obviously we're going to have to figure out a way to kind of level that across the world. But I don't know. I, (laughs) I think that there are very real issues with what kind with exactly what you're bringing up, right? Like we'll, all of this has been built on a mountain of coal and violence (laughs) to be candid. Right. And so it's like, would that quality of life under socialism, under a sustainable way of living, be something to look forward to putting aside the philosophical implications, which I do want to talk a little bit about, I think materially 100%. I just think that, and this is again, why I think that we need to be spending more of our time on actual concrete proposals, scientific proposals, because it's like, one of the biggest issues is energy, right? It's like exactly what you're saying. Well, how could we produce enough energy for like a trans, just the transportation network that is required to ship things around the world? Um, obviously we'd be doing less of that if we get into kind of like some of the relocalizing and production stuff, but like even just like powering city blocks, you know what I mean? We don't want to use coal. We don't want to use uh, natural gas. We don't want to use oil. We don't want to, I don't really know. I don't really want to get into the nuclear power stuff right now, but like we would want something ideally that is 100% renewable and something like solar isn't really that renewable. It uses renewable like resources and that it uses the sun, which is going to be around for a while, but like silicon kind of isn't and like, I don't know. There is, um, I've seen some proposals about like, uh, sin gas stuff about like, you know, biogas fuels about like synthesizing stuff from that, which you, you could maybe use, but then still you're going to have to use a lot of like biomaterial biomass, you know, which you could grow, I guess. But yeah, there are real limits and that's terrifying. <laughs> like energy specifically is the thing that like, yeah, we need to figure that out. I think that, I don't know. In agro-industrial society in its future, Will brings up the point where he's like, a lot of global agriculture is still being run by like, you know, oxen and cows because that's just a system that works and will always work. You know what I mean? So it's like, I don't want to be like return guy, but it's like, I don't know, maybe start using lay farming. You know, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Real questions. Scary stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, what I was just thinking about then was, was like... I was coming back to this idea of work, right? And the the meaningfulness of work and the meaningfulness of working with people and um, what is the standard of living? What are the qualities of a meaningful existence for a human being? Now, we're not necessarily in a position to dictate what they are. Um, <laughs> I could do it, but I mean, but I, but it, I mean, it's not it's not a it's not not a desperately extensive list, really. And the one that I would the one that I would put closest to the top is um, meaningful association with other human mm. beings. 100%. Yeah. Uh, and 
that can be brought about through meaningful connection to the two i don't want to like, like this dichotomy between like work and leisure right like me- meaningful collaborative effort engagement with other people uh that we could roughly describe as work i suppose um if that's a if that's a humans pulling a plow i mean I, I yeah I, I mean I don't know <laughs> maybe that is you know maybe maybe that's a that's a sort of like um, a very extreme example of the point that I'm trying to make but like um, and that can be paired with very technologically advanced ways of developing of harnessing energy as well you know like, um, yeah and we've got to, we've got to find we'd, we'd have to then find good and ecological ways of like giving the human beings the energy to pull that plow so there is there is a a, an energy question all the way through this did you did you um get anything particularly useful out of any of the discussions of um thermodynamics in any of this uh no no yeah (laughs) i don't think i did it's something that i'd like 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 yeah it, it was it's sort of tantalizing the kind of like um is there a, que- a question of entropy that we need to talk about? Is there a is there a way of looking at this analysis which is couched in that kind of like uh, language of physics? Um, yeah, I think maybe- the the language, yeah. But I think I'm always just a bit suspicious of people who aren't physicists, myself included, using applying those ideas to like sociology. It's like. Mm. <laughs> And does that make sense? I don't know. Maybe I don't know. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but I do think obviously the ideas of entropy are like important because it's like it seems like you could. I don't know. There, it doesn't seem like there is a way to one hundred percent sustainably produce everything that we need, and so that the closest thing that you can do is get it down to an absolute like just the tiniest little spiral of extraction that you can do, whether that's like. I'm thinking about like mining, right? For, for precious metals or like phosphates or things like that, right? Like it seems like you're always going to have to do a little bit of that. So in that sense, yeah, entropy and things like that, like those words make sense there. But like, especially when it comes to economics, I'm always a little bit like, I don't know, does this, does this hold up? I don't know, but it makes sense. I don't know. Um, To return to the quality of life stuff real quick, mm-hmm. because I do really want to talk a little bit about like, uh, maybe a more ideological sell on socialist politics, which is maybe just useless. <laughs> I don't know. In terms of like actually thinking about it in terms of, you know, what we read last episode was all about like, you can only look to real material motives for people. Those are the only things to get people to act in a revolutionary way. I think maybe I do, I do just want to talk a little bit about like the philosophy behind socialism as well, because at one point, in the degrowth and socialism essay, they say, we believe that a substantially higher amount of free time and social and communal organization of reproductive labor combined with the universal access to essential products in the broad sense, high quality health, education, public transport, cultural and information services, parks and recreation facilities, in addition to other material aspects of life, and this is the important part, do constitute a growth in the material standard of living for the vast majority of the global population. I'm tempted to just cut out the last bit and just say it would, just it would every single person on the planet. It's like, I get I, like, if you were to show, say we get in 200 years, we're in high stage communism. Say you were to show like, I don't know, 
JP Morgan's great, no, maybe say like Elon Musk's great, 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 great grandkid. Like, here's what your relative used to live like. He was one of these so-called like mythic capitalists who like exploited people for his own wealth. He had a private jet and all of these different things. He'd probably be like, that's so fuck, like, that's so fucking stupid. Because like, once you're, I think, get past the alienation of labor. And once you, in a material sense, get past competition in the labor market and competition just in a, in a and amongst the capitalist class as well, it wouldn't really make any sense for everyone to look at like hyper individualism like that in any kind of positive light. And I think that this goes back to the question of like, would everybody have a private jet under socialism or would nobody have a private jet? It's like, if you had a private jet under socialism, you'd be fucking run out of town because people would be like, look at this asshole. And I think the reason that I really think that it would be a better standard of living for everyone is because once you're able to get past the block in your mind of, I'm in it for myself. Once you're able to realize that we really are producing society together and that's what you do every day and you're able to realize that when you go to work and take pride in it, that's going to be the most important thing. Like, I don't want to sound like some hippy dippy here, but it's like, give us that, give us healthcare, give us housing, give us healthy, good food and give us meaningful work. And it's like, boom, there you go. I think that that's, that would be a better quality of life for everybody, no matter how many private jets you own. You know what I mean? And like, this is one of the reasons I really loved some of the stuff a few episodes ago when we spoke to Roger about concrete proposals for reorganizing workplaces is because I was able to glimpse maybe briefly what a post-capitalist de-alienated method of working looks like, where in some of those proposals, it's like, you know, you work in a play a car factory, you know how to do everything. So you can go home and you can be like, I am making cars. You know what I mean? And this is better from a productivity standpoint, et cetera, et cetera. Go listen to Roger talk about all of this stuff. But like, it's like on a farm. I know how to do everything on the farm. We all do it together. I'm not just the guy that does carrots. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know. For me, that constitutes a better quality of life than any kind of fucking UBI stay at home bullshit. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. <laughs> for everybody. I think I agree. I agree entirely. I'm inspired. And also feel a little bit sorry for Elon Musk for his alienation from the rest of the human race. But Yeah, yeah, poor him. <laughs> He's got it really bad. That's why he wants to go to Mars, to get away from the rest of us. Yeah, that's sad. We remind him of his humanity that he's lost. <laughs> oh, hmm. dear. Um, what else should we get? What'd you, what'd you make of uh, JBF's discussions of the Soviet Union and China? Did you, did you find those good? Um, I, I think, I mean, it's a good rundown of that sort of that process of development. Um, it's quite, um, in some ways considerate of the necessity. It's, I suspect quite friendly toward the kind of like Bukharinist new economic policy kind of thing. Um, I found having recently read that Schwong article, I found that the, portion on china like incredibly brief yeah and sort of contained none of the sort of like visceral uh, opposition to the generally counter-revolutionary nature of the transition to sort of like sort of quote-unquote mixed economy kind of thing i mean it, i mean it's a it's a good it's a good rundown of the history and i think in some ways it's probably necessary because along with all of these ulcers there is a real desire to um, as you've already said, like put planning forward as uh, an important and, mean- and a, a meaningful term and an important part of the solution to 
um, our current problems. And so it's kind of necessary to um, run through that history, if only to get to the end and say the problem with it was it's not democratic, I suppose. Yeah. Mm. Do you think that's a fair? Do you think that that's? That, do you think that's? Uh, that is his conclusion. I think so. I think when he's like, yeah, it's difficult because again, everybody needs to pick a side when they're talking about the Soviet Union, and Bukharin is like the easy guy to talk about because it's mm. like I don't know, maybe if they did that, would things have worked? I don't know, maybe you know, it's like the easiest one to point to to be like, well, they probably shouldn't have had like their pedal foot on the pedal quite as hard as they did with collectivization I mean, and stuff i mean i actually think he takes the best tact which is just like here is the history that happened i mean like, yeah actually like okay so priya brzezinski's ideas about primitive socialist primitive accumulation were pretty brutal <laughs> maybe this was bad maybe it's also good that stalin like built and rearmed the country in a way that it could defeat Nazi mm. Germany. That's sort of the time like he's taking. You know, like, I almost stood up and cheered when it was like, and the modern world hinged on them defeating the Nazis. I was like, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> um, I almost found more interesting that the portion in one of these histories, which is actually talking about the notion of economic growth and sort of in some ways how relatively new it is as an idea to economic thinking right it really only comes into the vocabulary post world war ii um and sort of prior to that there's not really the same engagement with these notions of economic growth and even like even like the the sort of the this discussion about like eisenhower's um attitude toward the great the great depression as being sort of like a feature of american overproduction and there being a degree to which those solutions that were put forward were and degrowth solutions to some extent so i think in so i think that my general summation is these essays contain a huge amount of very worthwhile um engagement with the historic history of all of these terms not just the sort of academic approach but the sort of uh, real world concrete uh, historical um, political policy um, approach to engaging these questions as well yeah yeah it is um it is I, I i wonder to the extent though i wonder the extent to which now people still say planning well that didn't work in the soviet union like i don't i don't know if anybody still does that anymore you know what i mean like and also, it is so obvious, like, once you actually read a just very short history of the things, as he puts forward here, it's like so obvious why it didn't work. You know, mm -hmm. it was like, he basically says, like, from the beginning, they were never really, even if they got their way, as soon as the Bolsheviks took power, they were never really trying to just do straight up planning, right? Like, that was never really the goal. And they were always kind of forced into doing, forced, I guess, into doing these different things. Um Never read about Prabhupada. It's just like so brutal too. It's mm -hmm. like it's like what about these ideas? And then Stalin has him shot. Like literally in I think it was in this they he makes the point where he's like at one point Prabhupada was like we need to do what England did in a century in several decades. And then Stalin has him shot. And then Stalin comes out and is like we need to do what England did in a century in a decade. It's like God damn it. <laughs> Thanks Stalin. Wow. <laughs> I mean that is the really depressing. Um when you read that history that is the really depressing feature is that like 
Stalin's maneuverings were entirely um, minded toward personal positioning, and so any any particular it sort of like throws into question the the sense of any of that any of those debates to some extent because uh all it ended up doing was like serving the rise to power of this one i don't know ego maniacal character schmuck Schmuck. (laughs) we we should we should one day dive into like trying to understand Stalinism and stuff and just, or just doing some reading about it. Very difficult to do though. Trying to find a book that isn't either just going to be like the most liberal bullshit you've ever read and be like, he was Hitler too. Mm-hmm. Or like, you know, Apologia. Maybe we just fucking read Grover Furges for a while. <laughs> there, is, there was a book reference in this. I can't remember what the guy's name is. It's called like An Economic History of the Soviet mm. Union or something. I have a copy of that book and I think it's mm. it's considered quite, um, considered to be uh quite authoritative so maybe okay. that's the one to look at at some point that's what yeah. i was thinking about when i was reading that history of the 20s was i would quite like to engage with the back and forth of um the soviet soviet planners planners approach to the constraints that they had the efforts they were trying to make why they gave up on certain things or um try to do other things what because there was a very real engagement with an effort to do planning it wasn't just like the soviet union just did stalinism kind of thing like these were real active debates and i would like to understand them more than i do yeah i love all of the books on stalin from a quote-unquote left-wing perspective always have such like witty names it's like let history judge or like khrushchev lied (laughs) it's like okay i feel like i can't trust these books Hmm. What are you gonna do? <laughs> um, you know, just a couple other things before we finish it up. Um, there's, a, there's one essay in here that's only like seven pages or something like that. That's basically seems like it was just put in there just to talk about technology and to make a little bit like, well, SD growthers like technology too, kind of thing. And it is quite good. It's by a guy named Jason Hickel. Um, and he's basically just making the point that he's like, the dichotomy isn't between using technology, new technologies and not. That's like the most stupidest, most like worst uh, 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 portrayal of degrowth ideas ever. It's just basically about how it's used, right? It's like nobody is against new forms of energy production. It's just about like, you have to think about it for five seconds. Um, because I guess mm. that's something that people throw against degrowthers is that you just don't like technology. It's like, well, you can use technology to shrink to shrink waste you know what i mean it's like duh i don't know it seemed incredibly obvious i guess mm. that's why the essay was only like seven pages the example i've enjoyed taking up recently is the idea of plastics right like mm. plastics are an incredibly useful thing that we should not be squandering <laughs> in throwaway plastics and plastic bottles and that kind mm. of thing like it's it's not it's not it's not either yes or no to a thing it's how are we actually going to use it and how does capitalism use a thing? Capitalism uses the things purely to benefit the accumulation of capital. Um, it's it's that fundamental feature of the mode of production that we need to change. And once we do that, everything else is up for grabs. You know, like um, yeah, helium has got to be the best example of that, right? Where it's like this useful thing that there is an ever sh- like we cannot make more helium. It is incredibly rare. And it's like, what do we use it for? Balloon. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. Which fucking balloons, dude. This is like my pre-socialist, like liberal who killed the electric car day is coming out. But it's like, what a terrible fucking thing balloons are. Just helium wrapped in plastic or like fucking just petroleum products that is just going to you let it go into the air and then it's going to come down and choke some fucking turtle. It's like, I'd like to strangle the man that came up with balloons. <laughs> Yeah. That answers the question who would you go back in time to kill i guess <laughs> yeah. hitler or the balloon guy <laughs> the balloon guy <laughs> um okay and then the last thing i wanted to bring up which was uh to slight maybe tie it back a little bit more um i recently finished a introductory course on becoming a counselor and one thing that they tell you we did a whole thing about endings. And one thing that they tell you to do at the end of every session is to tie it back into the here and now so that the person isn't just going to leave and just be fucking stewing and like what they bought up. You need to like bring them. So what are you going to be doing right after this? That kind of thing, right? Where are you, what are you going to get up to? Um, and I think to tie it back into now and maybe the more depressing now. <laughs> so maybe this is the opposite of what I'm trying to do. Yeah, don't do this to me, Jack. <laughs> Basically, one of the authors, Kent Klitgard, puts forward uh or actually he's quoting somebody else is it ming 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 lee ming min q lee might be min chi lee um as saying that there are only two strategies for halting two degrees of warming right and broadly defined under capitalist structures it they are the inertia approach and the equity approach right and inertia is every country is limited to uh uh it's unclear whether it was like carbon emissions. I think it was like carbon emissions that are equal to a percentage of its current emissions. So it's basically like everybody needs to cut their emissions by 15%, 50%, 100%, something like that. That's the inertia approach. And the author makes the point that this is favored by the global north, right? Because it's like the global north continues to be able to produce, you know, relatively way more emissions than the global south. Uh, but obviously this would be completely unacceptable to the global south itself. Finally, there's the equity approach, which is each country uh, cuts its, has like a limit on carbon emissions equal to its own population. And this would obviously be favored by the global south, but not so much by the global north. Because if you're living in like Lichtenstein, you have like three cars, you know what I mean? You're going to be like, what? I have to get on a bus? Give me a break. Um, and I just, I thought that this was like maybe, because a lot of this I felt like was kind of couched in bourgeois like modern politics and it's like man if we're dreaming let's just say that we already have socialism how can we make things work you know what i mean but they do talk a little bit about the politics of trying to get there and stuff and sometimes that gets a little bit frustrating because they're like we need to do degrowth on the military but also suvs it's like suvs what is this 2003 <laughs> like... yeah the num- i've never read the phrase sports utility vehicle more times than i have when i was reading these essays. i know i was like why do they keep using suvs as the example for degrowth? it's like who's this aimed at suburbanites like yeah it's because i mean they're all boomers i think that don't they're like... all boomers yeah no more hummers nobody can have a hummer anymore <laughs> Because part of that, I think I wrote in the margins after that at one point, I was like ecological communization now because it, like one of the authors was like, um, yes, we need uh, more. We need electric cars, but we also need to figure out how to produce electricity sustainably. And I was like, we don't need cars. <laughs> I was like, if we're dreaming, fuck cars. Like my social utopia, not everybody has a Tesla. You know what I mean? <laughs> like there are trams. Anyway, the inertia and equity stuff. um, I think is 
a question really worth reckoning for the socialist left, I suppose, because that is a real, whether we like to think about it or not, that is going to be the defining question of probably the rest of our lives, right? It's like, what is the relationship going to be to the global South where there are going to be potentially billions of climate refugees uh, versus the global North that is going to try and keep polluting uh, at uh, obviously unsustainable rates because it's pollution, but also relatively uh, much, much more than its counterparts in the so-called global South. So something to think about, um, pretty brutal. And um, I think everyone's going to be able to just get along. Always going to be fun. I mean, you you do you. The idea does definitely highlight the degree to which a lot of this stuff has been not pie in the sky thinking, but kind of like future orientated theoretical thinking. Um, I mean, I guess the answer is that our politics should always be internationalist. It should always uh, see borders as not as um, as being fictitious. Um, inventions but and should have really no bearing on our understanding of who we are as the global working class but also in the context of uh fixing our ecological breakdown um borders countries along with workplaces and the divisions that they all bring about are something which we fundamentally need to build a politics which is opposed to Mm, yeah and it is interesting trying to think about like if you are organizing in the so-called global north, like wh- how are you going to sell so-called degrowth to people? We've already, I'm not going to, you know, we've already talked about why I think it would be better for everybody, obviously. But to a certain extent, it's like, okay, you're going to have to convince people, okay, no more Arby's, no more fucking highways, you know, no more eight TVs, three Apple watches, an iPhone and iPad and two computers. You know what I mean? And maybe that means your shirts are going to cost a little bit more because you can't use slave labor to make them anymore. And, you know, those if people are acting rationally, like if you confront them with those choices in the first world, they won't pick them. And they can't really necessarily be blamed for not picking that because that if in their shoes, that's just what they're always going to do. Right. So I think that maybe this what this made me think of is it's like then you need to have this question be answered solely as the process of new social relations this is like i think maybe this question can only be answered by just instituting a utility-based economy i think labor vouchers and just letting that sort it all out because then people will be like oh yeah no military oh yeah uh sure healthy food why would i not vote for healthy food you know what i mean as opposed to maybe trying to do a little bit of uh technocratic socialism i guess of like tweaking things and stuff so mm-hmm. yeah, we'll see yeah the alternative is, is what you do what you just described what you were just critiquing is a a moralistic and a consumeristic one like you cannot consume these things that you like consuming we're going to mm-hmm. take those away and we're not going to give you anything in return um and you you make the good point that we should circumnavigate that argument entirely and um work out what we can give people rather than what we can take away from them totally. um, and a different relationship to different set of social relations and a different relationship to the mode of production. Um, maybe just starting with community associations and solidarity inside and outside of the workplace, maybe that's the place to start. But it's like, rather than criticizing, criticizing and moralizing and um, taking away from people, you need to work out what you can offer them instead. Or we do. Yeah. Yeah. 
totally. And I think that even if, if you are trained to make those decisions for people, even as we kind of have been a little bit on the show, you just got to recognize too, that that is always going to come through your own specific, like ideological heuristic of what you think is good for people. And it might not be like we've said it before in the show, listen to the working class, you know, what are you going to yeah. do? It seems crazy, but maybe just listen to people. Yeah. People probably know what they want. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Um, all right. Uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed these. I, th- I think it's good. And I enjoy talking about degrowth, I guess. Again, this is maybe the John Bellamy Foster essay or some of the shorter ones could be the perfect thing to send to your on the fence liberal fans, because it's like, yeah, how are you going to disagree with needing to plan things in the face of such a catastrophe? The only way you could disagree with it is if you're like a, a capitalist, in which case, fair enough, or like you disagree that climate change is like an epochal crisis, which give it a couple more years, they won't be thinking that, you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. yeah, send it to your liberal friends. It's good the, stuff. Yeah. The, the, the danger is the liberal friend reads it and comes away with the idea that you need sort of benevolent despot planning. Yeah, true. Um, yeah. I think that's the thing that's sort of underlying a lot of this and is the central critique of these essays, what this essays, these essays are critiquing, but um, planning could go another way, I suppose. Um, it doesn't necessarily need to be liberatory. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. Hopefully the Soviet Union examples just show that it's like, yeah, you don't want to do that. Because <laughs> then you just get a new class. You know, yeah. you just get a new class of people that are just bureaucrats. So, yeah, what are you going to do? Is there hope for the liberals, Dan? I like to think so, but who knows? <laughs> um, all right. On that happy note. <laughs> On that happy note. I don't know. Are, are we going to have an episode next in two weeks? We might not. Mm, it's we might, possible it might be that we a won't. while. It's yeah, something we need to discuss in a minute. Yeah, I'm going back to the land to the what's a funny word for America? The behind the, the burger the, curtain. The, the burger curtain. <laughs> <laughs> um, to visit family, it's going to be very mm. nice. Um, and then I'm coming to your yeah, neck of here. the woods when you're going. Yeah, <laughs> God damn it. We will see each other, listener. Don't worry. We will. We will. But will we'll we be recording a podcast? There's a thought. Uh huh. Mm. anyway well it might be a while is what we're saying (laughs) unless we find something incredibly easy to watch or read yeah yeah if you've got any good movies we could watch and talk about then we just watch an adam curtis movie why not oppenheimer barbie i've seen i'm thinking about doing i haven't seen oh have you yeah okay is it good i haven't seen it yet it was really good yeah i wouldn't recommend if you're gonna do them both i would not do do oppenheimer then barbie I'm thinking about doing it this weekend. I'm thinking about doing yeah. it this weekend. I mean, I mean, I do do it on separate days, and I, th- I honestly, I think do Barbie first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I've heard. Yeah. yeah. Can I go to Barbie by myself? That's the real question. <laughs> this, is, this has been my question. Yeah, that's <laughs> why that I've not question. done that. <laughs> but I do recommend. I do recommend Oppenheimer. Yes, yeah, it's, it's good. Okay. Cool. All right. Well, we'll be back at some point in the future. Dan, thank you so much for this. This was, mm-hmm. I thought thank it was going to be much more doomy. So we succeeded not, you know, there's some brutal fucking <laughs> not depressing shit. Out too much. So, yeah. yeah, we haven't bummed ourselves out too much. So. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. We didn't talk about the four degrees of warming in the 75 meters of ocean sea level. Sef- dude, oh, 75 meters. I was like, wait a minute. That's like 225 <laughs> feet. I was like, yeah, wait yeah, yeah. a yeah, minute. Yeah, I'm underwater right now. <laughs> yeah. I was like, what? whoa. Hmm. Yeah. Brutal. <laughs> Anyway, one thing right. I will say in terms of climate change, it's been like brutally hot in the rest of 
the continent, which I've taken mm-hmm. to saying since moving over here and not just Europe. Um, here, the jet stream's just been stuck in place and it's just been like kind of wet. It's been kind of nice. Yeah. <laughs> it's been all right. So, you know, as long as that keeps happening, I'll be yeah. all right. <laughs> Anyways, okay. Thank you so much, Dan. Um, see you at some point in the future for something great. And thank you to the listener. This has been fun. Yeah. Bye-bye, everyone. Yeah, it's been fun. Thanks. The music you heard this episode was Music to Kill Bad People To by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. If you like this song, you can check it out and much, much more on their Bandcamp at kinggizzard.bandcamp.com. Be sure and follow us up on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you like what you heard, be sure and tune in next week for some more commie discussion. Till next time. Yeah.